All right, this is our fourth episode of our third series on multiple personalities. Uh, before we get underway here, I uh, just want to make a couple of plugs. First, uh, we want to thank uh, Turquoise Is My Talisman for rating us online. She gave us five stars. Thank you, Turquoise Is My Talisman, <laughs> T-I-M-T for short. Um, she, she said heart. Heart was her review. And other nice things. What more could you want from a she podcast? She gave all the stars, I mean. <laughs> yeah, she, she gave us some heart. We, we very much appreciate that. Uh, if you have a minute, we encourage uh, all our listeners to hop on uh, iTunes and give us as many stars as you think we're worthy of. Um, and Shannon, uh, you have an announcement for oh, yes, for follow our, listeners. our Instagram. Yes, we have a brand new Instagram account that Shannon is operating. Yes, it has great three success. posts right now. Three posts? That's yeah. a... Wow. It's pretty nice. That's a lot. But it's... There will be more. (laughs) (laughs) Something to look forward to. Yes. All right. Okay. Let's get started here. Let's begin with a story. On a Sunday in the spring of 1811, the 18-year-old Mary Reynolds, whose family had moved from England to Pennsylvania 14 years earlier, fell into convulsive fits and for five or six weeks afterwards was completely deaf and blind. Her hearing returned all at once, but her sight came back only slowly. Then, three months later, one morning, her family awoke to discover that they could not get Mary out of bed. You guys had this problem before? That's just my typical day. Yeah, yeah, just like getting out of bed. Yeah. So far, relatable? She slept for another 18 to 20 hours. Still relatable? Yes, I do that all the time. And we're college students, Rob. Yeah. Right. What do you expect? Before awakening completely ignorant of everything she'd ever known. Oh. That's. I feel like I've done that well. too. Yeah. Oh, sorry. This included the ability to put words together into sentences. Sometimes. <laughs> On a really rough day. She's just out too late. Her eyes were virtually for the first time opened upon the world. Old things had passed away. All things had become new. In a word, she was an infant, just born. Yet born in a state of maturity with a capacity for relishing the rich, sublime, luxuriant wonders of created nature. But Mary's father couldn't quite make sense of things this way. She was like an infant in that she didn't know how to talk or write or hold a pen. But her intellect and maturity were capable of picking these skills up much more quickly than any infant could have. The moment she was awake, she commenced to wonder and reason how she got there and from whence she came. Now an infant would not have had any such thoughts, and the moment it was capable of understanding would have believed all that it was told, whereas she would believe nothing. I'm only getting into difficulties and contradictions, as everyone must, who talks about what he does not understand. So I'll quit. Oh, I guess that just confuses me, if if they forgot complete, like, their whole memory of, like, anything. Well, so, my baby does not have a fully developed brain. Um, okay. Right, so she's both trying to get her brain into physical shape to learn things and trying to learn things all at the same time. Like for the first three months, you hardly learn anything at all. You learn really basic motor stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But Mary Reynolds, 18 years old, not a fully formed brain, but, you know, pretty close. Mm -hmm. So she was able to pick things up much quicker. There's a certain logic to it, I guess. Okay. Uh, Having forgotten what a black bear was, she confused it with a pig and she chased it with a stick. (laughs) Uh, Having forgotten what a rattlesnake was, she grabbed one by the tail, uh, and when it 
ran away, she reached down its hole after it, narrowly missing it. Well, that's rude. What? She, what did, yeah. It, that's terrifying. Wait, what did she think it was again? Did she, it say? She, or she thought that the black bear was a pig. The snake, she was just like, ooh, cool. What? I'd like to touch this. So she chased it into its hole. Where she stuck her hand into she, its hole. She dove it. <laughs> I don't look like that. <laughs> Five weeks later, after another long sleep, she woke up again, having completely forgotten all of her adventures as the newborn teenage girl she'd been for over a month. For the next 16 years, she alternated between these states with their own memories and no knowledge of the other personality's existence until finally at the age of 35, she permanently fell into not the first personality that she was born with, but the second one, where she remained for the next 25 years. Long before the concept of multiple personalities became fodder for daytime talk shows, soap operas, and the Hollywood movies, people like Mary displayed the telltale signs of separate individuals living with separate memory streams in the same body. I have a weird analogy of how I'm trying to make sense of this, but I think of it as like video games, when you create a save game, but then you make a new one, but then you go back to the other one and you're still in the same spot. Right, yeah, you've got two, two guys running through the world of the game. Hmm. She can go back and forth between the guys, but she doesn't pick when. It just happens. It just happens. But she still, like, regain, like regains, um, keeps everything that she learned in the second one. Yeah, yeah, just like your save state okay. stays the same. Same with the second one. She doesn't yep. revert at all. Yep, yep. Huh. But none of them, but huh. they don't have memories of what the other one did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So is this, like, a case of separate, I know it's called uh, multiple personalities, but... I know, it seems like it's just a fault in memory, like, it just changes one memory where she knows more information, but the characteristics of the person still the same? Like, when she's one person, she's still Mary, but it's not like, oh, this Mary's like a goofy Mary, and the other Mary's like a, like an angry Mary. It's, it's just, just different memories. memories, yeah. Okay, yeah. so it's not her personality. That's... Well, it results in slightly different personalities, ultimately, yeah. Because yeah. mm -hmm. different not experiences. Not like dramatic no, differences. No, no. We'll, we'll get to cases like that. Mm. <laughs> Long before the concept of multiple personalities became fodder for daytime talk shows, soap operas, and Hollywood movies, people like Mary displayed the telltale signs of separate individuals living with separate memory streams in the same body. These cases raise questions about the way we think through the mind, consciousness, the limits of our physical brains, and whether some aspect of who we are stretches beyond the limits of the material world. My name's Rob Thompson. I am the supreme hierophant of the secret order of alchemical actors. I am here with Shannon Landers. Hello. Who I, I guess is subbing in as Grandmaster again today. Oh, cool. Although we <laughs> we do have another literal in the house. We have Brianna sitting with us. Hey. Olivia's sister here, um, who I could also be considered, I guess, between the two of you. And that's what I assume. I, I feel like we're like placing a, a literal. We, could be. we have yeah. the biological connection and the and the, uh, the ceremonial connection. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So between you, we have one full Olivia. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And Jacob. <laughs> and then I'm here. Jacob Wheatley, just, just, yep, just, just hanging out. Just hanging. Yep. Okay, cool. Yep. Um, you're listening to Occult Confessions. Ready? We, we the members of the, the secret, secret order of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. 
All right, we've got to invite a significant player into this discussion, a man by the name of Frederick Myers. We've said his name a time or two before on the podcast, but for this episode and for our next episode, we're going to go deep on what Myers thought. He was one of the founders of the Society for Psychical Research, um, and he did a lot of research on the possibility that our consciousness survives our physical brain. And uh, he, a lot, some of the evidence that Myers was able to provide actually comes back to multiple personalities. So that's sort of the thrust of our conversation today, to connect the phenomenon of multiple personality to the concept of an immortal mind. When I bring up the Society for Psychical Research, or SPR, as we'll call it for the rest of today's episode so that we can spare ourselves saying the Society for Psychical Research over and over again, mm-hmm. uh, we've got to keep in mind that this is uh, an important influence for the formation of the subfield of psychology called parapsychology. There is, in the earliest days of psychical research, an intimate connection between psychology and the paranormal. So it might seem strange to us, uh, this notion that multiple personalities, a sort of psychological anomaly, has any tie to the paranormal qualities of our souls. But in the 1900, this wouldn't have seemed so strange. Freud himself studied paranormal phenomena. Weird, right? So if our soul consists of our personality does that mean these people have like multiple souls in one body it's more the concept that there is something inside of your consciousness that can toggle between personalities Mm -hmm. which doesn't make as much sense if we limit ourselves to thinking that we have a physical brain we got to have a whole episode, Shannon, before this makes sense. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> got it. Too soon. Too soon. Too, too soon. soon. Um, this is in no small part because people like Myers, um, who believed the human mind was capable of what we might call supernatural feats, were also interested in psychology. Uh, for Myers, telepathy and telekinesis and astral projection weren't actually supernatural. They were perfectly natural examples of how the mind worked. It was our failure to create an accurate picture of what the mind really was that caused us to push these phenomena out of nature into the scientific trash heap of supernature. Oh. So we can do that, is what that means? I we know can... how to astral project. <laughs> I do it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> we can do that. Yeah. You can, too. I can. Yeah. Can I do uh, telepathy, though? Yes. Tele- In theory. Hmm. Dear, I've never accomplished it. We all have different but... thresholds of skill. It's sort of like a skill oh, you're born with, yeah. yeah. Like, some hmm. people can play the piano well. Hmm. Like, like James. Yeah. <laughs> In order for us to understand how this connects to the phenomena of dissociative identities or multiple personalities, so um, FYI, multiple personalities is the old term. Uh, dissociative identity disorder is the new tor- new, ter- new term. So we'll sort of be using those interchange- interchangeably. Uh, we need to wind our way through the problems that memory poses for the concept of the mind as being purely physical. Let's hear a bit from Frederick Myers about how these concepts are connected. I hold that we, each of us, contain the potentialities of many different arrangements of the elements of our personality, each arrangement being distinguishable from the rest by differences in the chain of memories which pertains to it. The arrangement with which we habitually identify ourselves, what we call the normal or primary self, consists, in my view, of the elements selected for us in the struggle for existence, with special reference to the maintenance of ordinary physical needs, and is not necessarily superior in any other respect to the latent personalities which lie alongside it. I consider that dreams, with natural somnambulism, uh, automatic writing with so-called mediumistic trance, 
as well as certain intoxications, epilepsies, hysterias, and recurrent insanities afford examples of the development of what I have called secondary mnemonic chains. Fresh personalities, more or less complete, alongside the normal state. For Myers, it's the division of memory that is most significant in establishing whether a person has entered a second personality. This is the clearest feature in Mary Reynolds' case. One personality starts fresh, with no memories whatsoever, and the other has her original memories, but none of the alternate personality's memories. We've got to get a major tangent out of the way here before we can start telling the stories of history's earliest multiple personality cases, Mary accepted. And that tangent is all about memory. If I've got this supernatural, subliminal self, that's bigger than my brain, and there are these different chains of memory inside this subliminal self, then my memories cannot be tied to my physical brain. Memory itself has to be non-physical, existing somewhere in the otherworldly ether of me. You following this so far? Yes. Um, yes. Okay. <laughs> Wait, in, did you have a question? I think... So I just like picture a body sitting there, right? Uh -huh. And there's like this little glow around you, and mm. it's just like picking up things, like the little I don't know. <laughs> I think that's oh one way to picture yeah. it. Yeah, I'm that, kind of picturing a... like a cloud. Memory cloud. Yeah. 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 Your memory is in the like cloud. In uh, Black Mirror. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's what I'm picturing. Right. It's not as crazy as it sounds. Uh, we're going to be drawing on, uh, let me just cite my source here, Bennett and Hacker's History of Cognitive Neuroscience. That is um, a great book, yes, uh, but perhaps you can tell by the title, it's some heavy lifting. Uh, so word of warning if you want to do your own research at home. Hopefully I'll be able to pass on just a facet of their ideas here in a way that's not too, too heavy. Uh, but my friends here are going <laughs> to help to lighten the load, <laughs> lighten things up. Yay. Make sure everything makes sense to, to us. Okay, so neuroscientists explain memory in terms of what's called trace theory, T-R-A-C-E. A child encounters a dog for the first time, let's say, for example. Uh, the dog runs up to the child, licks the child's face, and this experience is stored in the brain. The strengths of certain synapses in our heads change to store this experience, right? So mm -hmm. something shifts in our brain, some physical change is made. Ah, I have... Not a dog. Now I know. And the next time the child experiences the dog, the child calls up that experience um, of running up to the dog and expects to be licked. Right? So yeah. we go back to that memory. That in explains our heads. why so many people try to come up to dogs whenever they're like out walking them. Yes, they have that memory. And so like, many ah, times I have to tell them, stay away from Toby. He doesn't like people. We're already running into some problems. Not just Toby, but the rest of us too. <laughs> Toby is not a problem. <laughs> First of all, He's running into problems, these people. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Liking dogs, wanting to get, wanting to pet dogs. Yes. Yep. <laughs> okay, so here's some of the problems uh, for memory. Uh, first of all, the memory of the dog is going to be complicated by things outside of the memory itself. The child's mother might say after the dog walks off, don't run up to strange dogs. Ask if you can pet them first and pet them on the side. Don't stick your hand in the dog's face. None of these facts are experience-based, except insofar as the child can remember or call up the experience of being told these facts, right? All the things that mom just said, you didn't experience them, you heard them from mom. Uh, but this is all information that will alter the way we encounter a second dog. 
So we not only have the experience of the dog, but now we have the experience of mom telling us how to encounter the dog. The child remembers the original positive experience and also remembers the mother's warnings. These memories work together to determine how the child interacts with dog number two. So, some questions pop up for us. First, how does the brain, or more accurately, the body, alter the strength of the synapses, the physical trace, to account for changes in a memory experience? If we think about the body as sort of etching the memory on the brain, now it's mm -hmm. got to go back and etch over the etching. It's like white it out real quick, right over right. it. Yeah, it seems like we're creating a mess of our brains. In fact, the experiential memory of the dog really isn't changing, but the knowledge of how to interact with the dog is changing. Experiences uh, creating physical traces in or on our brains is the only logical way to make sense of how we have knowledge if we hold the view that memory is physically stored in our brains some way. But our actual lived experience of using knowledge doesn't quite match up to this. When I see a dog, I don't remember the first time I ever saw a dog. Right? No. Yeah. When I see a dog, um, I'm not calling up an image of my red-haired Cocker Spaniel that I grew up with as a child. The first, I don't know, five, ten years of my life. We had this little Cocker Spaniel named Ginger. It was my first word as a baby. Aww. Uh, but I actually can't remember the first time I met this dog because she was in my house before I was. Right? Yeah. I don't have an initial memory of the dog. I can't call the dog up. Even things I encountered later in life, like, I don't know, subject-verb agreement or addition and subtraction function the same way, right? It's not just that I encountered the dog at a t period in my life when I couldn't form strong memories. I was at a period in elementary school where I could form strong memories of addition and subtraction and subject-verb agreement, but guess what I don't do when I write a sentence or add or subtract? remember the time I learned those things yeah. in the first grade. I don't suddenly recall myself sitting in the room with the crayons, construction paper drawings on the wall, and the teacher, and the little borders, and all that. I'm not there. I'm not there. No, you, you don't do I'm, that? I don't do You do I'm that? I'm just now also oh. imagining you just being like, ah, oh, yes, I remember the time. Every single time <laughs> Every you write. Time. Every time, right. It makes life more exciting, you know? Shannon's waiting on tables. They're like, how much is my bill? She's oh, like, give yes. me a second. Let I, me cast my mind back I to the first grade. Currency. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> currency. The golden yes. age of learning. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do this, but the theory is that the experience creates a trace on our brains, but it, our memory doesn't literally doesn't work that way. Neuroscientists like to use the metaphor of a book or cards in a filing cabinet. You store information in, in your brain the way I store lecture notes in the filing cabinet in my office. The more sophisticated way of saying this is that the brain has some sort of memory syntax or neural code. But if I sent Brianna to my office to grab my lecture notes on the way back to the classroom, she could flip open the folder and read and understand what's written there. If I sent Shannon to my brain to grab my lecture notes, she couldn't do office. that. Right. I keep those. I also keep my brain in my office, the bottom drawer. I tried before. It just doesn't work. She can't flip through it. She can't flip through my synapses to read what my memories say. And that's not just because Shannon doesn't know the code. The synapses aren't writing a code in the first place. That would mean that your brain is covered in a kind of writing, which it couldn't possibly be. All right, now here's the real killer. Trace theory 
presupposes memory. So trace theory, again, the theory that our physical brains contain our memories like the filing cabinet and that we're writing on our brains in this neural code, presupposes that we have memories. In order to store memories, I need to have memories. All right, let's, let's walk this through. Hacker and Bennett ask us to look at the trace metaphor two ways. First, suppose our memory is these traces coded onto our brains that we can go back and read the way Brianna does as she's walking down the hallway with my notes. We might think of this like a diary. I record all my experiences in my brain journal, all the dogs I've ever met, all the girls I've ever had a crush on, all the ice creams I have ever ice creamed. <laughs> And I can go back and I can read those memories whenever I need to. Oh look, there's Kelsey. Do I have a crush on her? Let me check, not since Tuesday. But <laughs> remember along with my experience of dogs and girls and desserts is all my memories of how to do things like adding, subtracting, baking sourdough bread, and here's the big one, reading. If my diary is my brain, then I have to have written in there my memory of how to read my memories. Let oh. that sink in for a second. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the skill of reading my diary must be stored in my diary, right? Otherwise I wouldn't be able to access it. But if I don't know how to do it without reading it, then how can I ever access that ability? my diary has to remain incomprehensible to me. It's like if the diary were written in invisible ink and the explanation for how to make the ink visible was also written in invisible ink. Do you see? Yeah, yeah that's rough. We have to remember the code, but we need a memory in order to remember the code. So there couldn't be a code, yeah. right? There's no way to figure out the trick and I'm stuck on the outside of my own memories. The other way we get stuck is what's called an infinite regress, which is one of my favorite terms. Um, <laughs> but you never want to get stuck in one. Here we'll use the metaphor of a photo album. I can leaf through the album of my memory and pull up an image, my first theatrical production at the college. I can remember Shannon's first audition. I can see her on stage doing her monologue. But in order to make sense of that image, I have to remember who Shannon is, and what our stage is, and what show we're doing. The photographic memory presupposes that I already have memories to make sense of it, right? If I'm picturing Shannon on stage giving an audition monologue, there's a whole lot of memories that have to come in even before I can process what I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. I have to know what a monologue is, what an audition is, what Shannon is, all these things. There's medical evidence that patients who have suffered from brain injuries have temporarily lost their ability to remember life events or skills. I just can't place Shannon's face. But when the area of the brain healed, the memory immediately returned. Oh, that's Shannon. If the brain was a written record and had been scratched or scarred, then the memory could never be fully recovered. But if the brain is only a mechanism to pull those memories down out of a super-physical, subliminal self. One more time. A super-physical, subliminal self. Here's where you guys go. Ooh. Ooh. Ah. Ah. This scenario <laughs> makes more sense. 
There is no such thing as storing memories in the brain. Rather, the capacity to remember various kinds of things is causally dependent on different brain areas and on synaptic modifications of these areas. Myers offers a solution in the form of a disembodied mind. Our digital world has given us the language of cloud storage, which we sort of alluded to. Mm. Our Buffy the Vampire Slayer fanfic and naughty selfies are stored on the cloud. Wait, but, but, like yeah. <laughs> well, whatever. Um, for Myers, the same is true of our memories, except that the cloud isn't a bank of electronic boxes somewhere in Palo Alto. It's a literal cloud, some non-physical entity, as Shannon was imagining, and uh, Brianna, associated with our bodies, but that is somehow beyond our brains. Louis Vivet. Louis Vivet, mm. uh, the first person to be diagnosed with multiple personality disorder and the inspiration for Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, is another great example of the play of memory in dissociated identities. Okay, so you've survived the philosophy of memory. Now I will reward you with stories <laughs> of multiple personalities. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Vivet was certainly not the first person to suffer from this particular disorder, but he was the first one to be categorized by the newly established field of psychology in the late 19th century. Louis-Auguste Vivet was born on the 12th of February, 1863. His mother beat him and starved him, and at the age of eight, he found himself out on the street, stealing to survive. That year, he was caught and sentenced to a house of correction for two years. Then, at the age of 10, he was sent to the agricultural colony and vineyard of Sonnerban, where he went to school and was regarded as hardworking and bright. Good job. Hmm. Seven years later, working in the vineyard, a snake wound itself around his left arm, traumatizing him. What was that on your arm? <gasps> ah! 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 Snake! A snake! Ah! 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 Something blue! Cordon bleu! <laughs> Mon dieu! Fondue! Fondue! Jacusto! That night, he had violent convulsions and lost the use of his legs. Hey, Louise, come over here and get some wine and go down blue. Okay, I'm coming. Ow! Louise, are you okay? I fell. I don't think my legs work anymore. It was 1880, and he had just turned 18 when he was transferred to the asylum at Bonneval, where they began to teach him how to be a tailor, consistent with his disability. A year later, after a... Well, his hands worked. What do you mean? <laughs> so, <laughs> I just saw Asylum and Taylor, and I don't know. Oh, well, they they, yeah, they need clothes. I guess, but like work? I didn't think clothes that was made, what though? they did. Clothes are made in asylums, traditionally. Huh. Yes, oh. only the insane make clothes. They're that the explains only ones a lot. Right. Good yeah. clothes. Have you not seen the fashion industry? Yeah, right. Right. <clears throat> so. Whoa. A year later, after a 50-hour spell of convulsions drifting in and out of coma, he wanted to get up and demanded his clothes to go and work in the fields. Hey, Louis! Hey, where's my clothes? I need to get back to work. I need to start digging. But you're paralyzed. What? No, I'm not. Look at these jumping jacks. They're great. I did four jumping jacks. He didn't recognize any of the patients he'd spent the entire year with. His personality seemed to have changed. He was ill-tempered and immoral. Hey, Louis! I don't like the way your face looks, so I took your pocket watch. But, th 
That was my favorite pocket watch. He was released from the hospital and visited his mother in Chartres before taking up agricultural work again. But then his attacks returned. He had bouts of paralysis, sometimes through his whole body, and violent changes in mood. When he was paralyzed from the waist down, his personality was gentle. But when he could walk, he picked fights and tried to steal things. His doctors discovered that when he was paralyzed, they could hypnotize him, and in this state, he could walk again. In April 1884, he woke up surprised to find his clothes were not at the foot of the bed, and convinced that it was still January. What month is it? Hey, Louis! It's not, it's not January. I really like that pocket watch. It's my pocket watch. He enlisted in the Marines, uh, but he stole while in their ranks, and they determined him to be of unsound mind, sending him to l'école de médecin naval, the school for naval medicine, at Rochefort. Okay, but like... How did he go into the Marines if he was in and out of being paralyzed? <laughs> I'm just imagining one day he's like up and at him and he just goes limp. What year side. was it? Maybe they were desperate. The Napoleonic Wars had taken their toll. Hmm. They just really needed men. So they... how, how do they explain? Do they pretty much have like two separate glowing things around them that they're picking up from? Hmm. Is that what they're getting at? The brain is picking different streams out of that cloud. Okay. Yeah. So now there's like two clouds following this one person. Well, or it's just one big cloud. It's like, yeah, one. They're like picking and choosing which parts to actually put into this okay. right. vessel. They all <laughs> exist in the cloud. And they're not aware of each other because that awareness is just the mechanism of the brain pulling from the cloud those streams of memory. So if it's just one big cloud, then how does everyone have their own unique personalities? How come? Everyone doesn't. No, we each have our own cloud. We, oh, we do have each. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. yeah. It's not. It's not a shared cloud. It's like we each have <laughs> we our own. We can't share cloud. those pictures that of Buffy. Just... <laughs> no, but I have my own fanfic. There you go. Um, right, my own selfies. <laughs> uh, Myers talks about cases where the controlling influence of the subliminal self, which pours over into our conscious self through a permeable boundary, reaches a certain intensity that precipitates a change in consciousness, and the particularly subliminal personality takes over. Um, So these fits that Vivet experienced appear to have been a spilling over of one or another personality, allowing that personality to take over the organism, as we're talking about here, Shannon. So the personalities exist in the cloud. You've got your personality, but then if there's this subliminal personality in the cloud that's getting stronger and stronger, it pushes on the boundary between the cloud and you and until it becomes you. Does that make sense? Yes. The fits that Vivet experienced appeared to have been a spilling over of one or another personality, allowing that personality to take over Vivet. Significantly, as with Mary Reynolds, each unique personality had its own string of memories that the others did not access. One knew he was paralyzed, the other had no idea that he had ever been paralyzed. The case of Vivet also reveals something really fascinating about people with multiple personalities. Each personality can have its own psychophysical states back to this paralysis. Vivet's personalities either were or were not paralyzed. In other documented instances of dissociative identity, there's cases where one personality has an allergy that another does not. A person could get splotchy and lose breath near a peanut, but the exact same person, when switched to a different personality, could enjoy a peanut butter sandwich without incident. Even more fascinating, Children often develop alternate personalities to cope with abuse. Louis' rough, thieving personality probably came from the year he spent stealing to survive. 
A parent may singe a cigarette burn into a child's arm, and when the child switches personality, the burn vanishes. But then, when the child switches back, the burn returns for as long as the personalities alternate. In other words, personalities could have different physical scars based on what they experienced while they were in control of the conscious state and the body. There's like, okay, so there's, I've, I've read a lot of like studies about this sort of thing, and um, it's like the physical and the mental side of it like together, not even just memories, but like um, people, like there's a whole study about lie detector tests and people with split personalities being able to pass them because one knows the information <laughs> on them, one can know this like ridiculous answer that people aren't supposed to know and lie about it, but they're not lying because they're not actively in that personality. Right, so the body wouldn't have the physical response yes. to the lie. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Hmm. In 1888, Vive was diagnosed with having 10 separate personality states, Ooh, all of them with different memories, characters, and psychophysical beings. He was transferred to the asylum at La Fonde, where the doctors observed him go through a déroulement spontané or unrolling of all of his personalities from the youngest one up. Wild stuff to watch, right? Yeah. The last record of Vivet was at the Bicetre Asylum in Paris in 1886. The déroulement spontané reveals something big about consciousness that we're tending toward here and that you guys are sort of dancing around. But in order to fully understand it, we have to go through just one more story. Let's drop back now. Let's go back, way back to the earliest known case of dissociative identity disorder. Oh, Jacob's scared. I know. <laughs> oh. I think I know which one you know this is. You know this case? We yeah. learned about it in psychology. Mm -hmm. Centuries before it would be diagnosed in Vevey, in April of 1584, the nun Jean Ferry was brought before the archbishop because the convent believed that she was possessed by demons. This happened a lot. Yeah. Sometimes you were. They had good reason to think so. She says a demon named Corneau, or Horns, drew her to him with candy when she was four and has since controlled her. Never take candy from a demon. Mm. <laughs> he prevented her from eating with the other nuns at her Dominican convent and forced her to eat alone in the attic. For some reason, that the gave attic. him pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, he wanted her to, so when she would try to eat alone with the, eat with the other nuns, the demon would make it unpleasant for her until she just had to go up into the attic. But why the attic? Like that, there's so many other places. <laughs> why the, was he like, to um, the attic? It's the grimmest <laughs> place of all. Yeah. Another demon, Sanguinaire, caused her to cut herself. Uh, we see the word blood in there, the French word for blood. And another, Garga, protected her from pain when she was beaten as a child, but returned to prompt violent head and body banging and self-strangulation in her early adulthood. So the same demon that was protecting her has now returned to torture her in the same means. Protected her from violence is now causing physical violence. You want some candy? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you want to bang your head against, against that wall? The attic. Blood. While this might be a good case for straight demonic possession, it's a bit more complicated than that. Beginning with her visit to the Archbishop, Mary Magdalene also visited her, and in August spoke to her, offering to protect her and drive away the devils. It is I, Mary. I will protect you from these evil demons. I will bathe you in my oils, and I will scare them away. Woo! Unlike the demons who possessed uh, Jean, Mary Magdalene was a visual and auditory hallucination, who nevertheless did not coexist with 
the demons. Mary Magdalene, so in other words, she only saw Mary Magdalene when she wasn't possessed by demons. Mm. When she was possessed by demons, no Mary. Mary tried to purge the contracts that Jean had created with the demons, but Jean couldn't find the contracts because they were hidden in her body. Then, in the course of a November exorcism, she became like a child, forgetting all that she had learned after the age of four and struggling to walk and talk. She asked the archbishop to be her grandfather, and he said, Okay. And she continued in this juvenile state of mind. It was that easy. It said, all you have to do is ask. Hmm. If ever you happen upon an archbishop. You just say, can you be my granddaddy? And he's like, yeah, man. Yeah. That's exclusive to archbishops? As far as I know, the only evidence I have is that archbishops will do it. If it's a minor canon or, uh, I don't know, a cardinal. Perhaps not. Mm. Perhaps I, not. I thought you meant like a song, so, and I was yeah, like, I was "Do like you ask canon. music to I was imagining a big ass <laughs> canon. Uh, so. right. It was like one of the hierarchy of the clergy in the medieval church. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> not a major canon. The minor. Right. Hmm. Where were we? Uh, while demonic possession is not something we easily rule out in this podcast, this case has a series of hallmarks of dissociative identity disorder, the conflicting personalities battling between good and evil, and the loss of memory of acts committed by other personalities, like, for example, the hidden contracts, which she couldn't find, right? She wrote the contract, but then she hid them while possessed by the demon, so that's why she couldn't find them again. The way Mary Reynolds couldn't remember a personality, or Louis couldn't remember being paralyzed. Um, as well as the age regression with its accompanying loss of memory. We see these memory streams yet again. The archbishop took pity on Jean and taught her as if she were a child and moved her into his house to care for her. He absolved her and broke her contracts with the devils. But pressured by rumors that his treatment of Jean was too intimate, he decided to send her back to the convent. So even back then, the Catholic Church was concerned about leaving young people alone with the clergy. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Jean exploded in a fit of rage, beating the archbishop and his assistants, and he relented and said, okay, you can, you can stay. In May 1585, she confessed to doubts she'd harbored about her faith, and the archbishop blessed her. Then in September, she was finally moved back into her own room at the convent in November after promising Mary Magdalene that she would write an account of her experience. The now 50 devils inhabiting her were finally dismissed from her body. Be gone, demons. Take your candy out of my attic. Oh, no, 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 no. I was too good for this man. Yeah, okay. Like now? Shoo. Let's do a bit of analysis here and try and understand what Jean's story had to do with our discussion. There's a turmoil inside of the young nun. She seeks to be nurtured by a father figure, an experience she seems to have lacked as a child. Also, she is conflicted about the faith she has committed her life to. These are psychic disturbances on a very deep level, and her demonic possession not only manifests these inner conflicts, it also ultimately resolves them. She not only produces the demons Naaman and Belial, but also their counterweight in Mary Magdalene. Her demons push her to receive help from the archbishop and won't let her leave him until her underlying disturbance is solved. And ultimately, she finds the peace that she needs with her faith and with her unresolved father issues. Jean Ferry's demons and Mary Magdalene all manifested in and with Jean ultimately to resolve her inner psychic pain. But let's just reflect for a moment on the fact that Jean's demons knew about each other and were able to work together, 50 demons, who manifested one at a time in her, but operated as a team. 
If the demons could only manifest as personalities in Jean's consciousness one at a time, where did they meet each other? How did they interact? Where did they make their plans? There must have been some underlying self for these personalities to play around in, some hidden self below the surface of our conscious mind. This is what Myers is saying about the cloud, the subliminal self. Let's turn very briefly to the famous case of Billy Milligan. <laughs> sad about it because they made a movie about it. Right. Yeah. Billy Madison? Billy Milligan. Oh. Close. Different movie. <laughs> yeah. The first person to be acquitted for a crime, in his case, rape and armed robbery by reason of dissociative identity disorder. He had two groups of personalities, 10 with specific names and characteristics, and 14 simply called the undesirables. The 10 actively sought to exclude the 14 and freely shared consciousness and spoke with each other. When Milligan attempted suicide, they put him to sleep for seven years, sharing his consciousness for that period and committing the two crimes for which he was accused. A militant communist Robin Hood personality committed the robbery, and a female lesbian personality committed the rapes. Huh. I know. How about that? There are plenty of case studies of patients with dissociative identity in which the various secondary identities talk to each other, like Jean's demons. They argue with each other. They make decisions about who should control the primary consciousness and decide how they should deal with the primary consciousness circumstances. Even though there's no place in the world, the way we understand it, for them to have those conversations, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're somehow talking to each other, but that conscious person isn't them at that moment. Where are they talking? They don't exist, theoretically, right? They exist in this psychic space. These exchanges take place in the great subliminal self, underneath our main consciousness, the cloud that we sort of conjured up when we were talking about memory. There is, says Myers, an underlying unity to consciousness that we're not aware of. That's where these personalities are talking to each other. And this deep subliminal self, far from being secondary to our conscious self, is actually much greater than our conscious minds, with access to a wider range of information and faculties than we are able to discover consciously. Let's go back to Jean and her psychic conflict. She wasn't aware or able to find solutions to this crisis of faith, these father issues, but her subliminal self could solve these problems in the form of demons and Mary Magdalene. Do you see? Yeah. Abnormal psyches like those of Jean Ferry, Mary Reynolds, Louis Fivette are not unique in their ability to create multiple personalities. Myers counts being hypnotized, sleepwalking, or, Jacob? Mesmerized. Somnambulism. Yes, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, dropping into trance, drug-induced hallucination. You were so on the spot there. I know. You can't put that much pressure on me. <laughs> um, all of these altered states that we can experience for Myers are secondary personalities for us, or at least openings onto secondary personalities. So we don't have to have an abnormal consciousness to have secondary personalities. Our dream consciousness is a secondary personality. Our second self has its own memory. My personality right now has its own chain of memories. But if I were to be uh, dropping into trances or dropping acid, a separate personality would pick up and start its own complete separate chain of memories. My original chain would stay intact, and so would this second chain. If I dropped acid again, I could access the chain again. It's possible that I could develop a whole second chain of memories by dropping acid every Tuesday afternoon, and my conscious self could never access those memories. I don't recommend this. Don't try this at home. <laughs> but you could. In theory. Not in, not in life. Don't do this in life. 
We do not condone dropping acid every Tuesday. I want. I could not be clearer about this. Why'd you say it? <laughs> not no days. None of the none, days. None of the days. No consecutive or non-consecutive. I do not. So Friday night. Uh, we'll discuss this later. They could just continue on their own place inside my subliminal consciousness. These various personalities. These various memory streams. We could, through repeatedly hypnotizing a subject, build up memories in that subject until they form a legitimate, functional, secondary personality. Our personalities can inform each other and give each other advice, even when we are not consciously aware of it. Among our various secondary selves, they may be aware of each other and have opinions about each other. And when our higher self has advice, as from God or the angels, it can find its way into our conscious life to instruct and guide us. Usually this happens through the mode of least resistance. If we are inclined to visualization, then through hallucinated images. If we have strong motor skills, then through automatic writing. Jean Ferry experienced devils and Mary Magdalene. That was her frame of reference. Mm-hmm. Billy Milligan was able to paint his other personalities. You can look them up and see them on yeah. the internet. But if there is this grander subliminal mind underneath our conscious mind, that's much bigger and deeper than we realize, what exactly can it do? There's an interesting story of a priest falling sick during Jean's exorcism. Uh, Jeanne gave the priest her image of Mary Magdalene and it cured him. But she had to have it back since symptoms of her possession were returning. This episode connects the deeper secondary personalities to an otherworldly power. He actually became ill through the movement of her personalities, through the action of her personalities. They can be, like Milligan's criminal personalities and Vivet's crude thief personality, more instinctually driven and less controlled than our primary selves. But they can also be like Mary Magdalene and more sublime. And that that wraps up multiple personalities. In our next episode, though, we're going to drill down into Frederick Meyer's theories of the subliminal consciousness and how they help to explain all the weirdnesses and oddities that our minds can accomplish. Right? Mm. So, you think you guys got this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're ready to move on to the next stage of this? Hell yeah. Yeah. All right. Listeners at home, stay tuned as we track down a host of mystics, geniuses, and phantasms of the living. Fan, fan, phantasms (laughs) of the living. In the next phase of our quest for the immortal mind. All right, Brianna, Shannon, who wants to bring us on home here? Can we do it together? Yes, you can do it together. Oh, Lean on wait, in. what is her? How does, how does, um, I've never done her. I know the beginning. Okay, we'll see how <laughs> okay. it goes from there. We hereby adjourn this, this meeting. meeting. Is it meeting or secret? Well, you're meeting. declaring yeah, it closed as well. Gathering meeting. meeting. Is it? Is it's it a meeting? It's a meeting. Meeting of the alchemical actors. Well, we're the secret order. Of the secret order of alchemical actors. just our short title. Until we find a time. Do it all again. again. Sure. That's that, close. That's, that's okay. I accept it. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, right. <laughs> you can find us online at www.occultconfessions.com uh, where you can click on uh, the donate link to visit our Patreon page. A dollar a month would be more than enough. Uh, we also want to remind you to go ahead and review our podcast. Give us as many stars as you think we are worthy of um, all of the stars as many stars as possible and uh check out our instagram check out our instagram yes we have a brand new instagram that's true yeah it's a baby 